Heavenly Father, we love the word of God. Lord, this Bible that reveals the greatness of the Lord and the arrogance and selfishness of humanity and the long-standing invitation that you've issued over and over again that we can turn from our sin and that we can turn to you, that we can experience grace and joy, forgiveness and hope. And Lord, as we look with confidence to the word of God, Lord, we pray that we would be reminded that we can look in confidence towards you, that you have a plan and a purpose, that everything that you've set out to do, you will do. Heavenly Father, we know that the universe is sovereignly and safely in your hands. Lord, I pray that you would anoint your servant. Lord, I pray that you would anoint these words. Lord, I pray that you would speak to hearts in only the way that you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 45, we're going to read the first eight verses. It says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze. And cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that you may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things rain above you or rain down you heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. In our study in the book of Isaiah, we discovered that from about chapter 40 on that the theme has been liberation, what it means to be set free. We've been talking a lot about that over the last several weeks. We are set free by God's greatness. We are set free by God's power. God has this awesome power. His power is such that it cannot be stopped. God will do what he has intended to do. And this passage of Scripture is devoted to the reality that God is the kind of God who can exercise his power in such a way that nothing, no nothing, can thwart his plan. And so his awesome power is always rooted in his character. 
part of the point of the passage must be and will always be that God is not only all powerful, but that God is all good and that God is incapable of ever doing anything wrong. The Bible teaches that human beings are servants to sin and to self or to the Savior. Jesus comes to free us, to release us, to liberate us from the ties and bonds of sin. The New Testament teaches that you are servant to that which you serve. And if you serve your own mind and your own wishes and your own circumstances and your own selfishness and your own sin, then you're servant to sin. Or you serve the Savior. And so we often think of freedom as independence, autonomy, or sovereignty. But the reality is that people apart from Christ have no freedom at all because they're servants of sin. Autonomy apart from God, self-rule apart from God, will have as its inevitable conclusion pain, heartache, estrangement, emptiness, and in the end, death. You see, when we talk about the power of God, we are reminded that God is real. Now, remember, people ask the big questions. Is there a real God? Am I real? The Bible teaches that God is real and that the world is real and that the consequences for sin are real. And for those people who deny God, they must of necessity deny sin and the reality of sin and the consequences of sin. The Bible not only entertains but embraces the hard questions. God doesn't shrink from problems. The Bible answers questions. The Bible even prompts more questions. Human beings, as you know, are an inquisitive bunch. We want to know everything about everything. We want to question everything. We're not comfortable with superficial answers to complex questions. Superficial answers to complex questions might work on a child, but it doesn't work on a person who thinks long and hard about the way that the world really is. As a child, you may have said to your mother or your father, why is this this way? And your mother says, I'm your mother and I said so. I'm your father and I said so. And that may have worked in the past, but it doesn't seem to work anymore. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, Isaiah wrote, Behold, my servant whom I am uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Remember, the Bible says that the children of Israel were the servant of God. The Bible says that the Messiah would be the servant of God. But now we have this strange figure from history, Cyrus. He also is called the servant of God. In this chapter, the first eight verses are devoted to the greatness of God. From, chap from verse 9 to 21, it speaks of the arrogance of, of humanity and the arrogance of man. And then in verses 22 and 25, the chapter ends with an invitation by God for all of the world to receive him, to know him, to understand him and accept him. Many years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book entitled 
your God is too small. He wrote, and I quote, Many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction, without any faith in God at all. This is not because they're particularly wicked or selfish or, as the old fashioned would say, godless, but because they have not found with their adult minds a God big enough to account for life, big enough to fit in with the new scientific age, big enough to command their highest admiration and respect, and consequently their willing cooperation. But you know, it's been my experience that those people who have discovered that God isn't big enough have never really read the Bible. And they certainly haven't read the book of Isaiah. Because when you receive a description of God in the Bible, the uncreated creator who not only occupies eternity, but who establishes all things, who, who guides and, and orchestrates all things, he is magnificent. He is huge. We sometimes, again, forget the greatness of God. God doesn't shy away from his responsibility. You might have expectations about God. You may even be unhappy with God. In moments of dangerous clarity, you might even be angry with God. But I want you to know something. The reoccurring testimony of the Bible is God accepts full responsibility for the unfolding of human history and sacred history. God has a plan. God is sovereign. God is in control of all things. And number two, God warns us and reminds us that we should not be offended by that. But some of us are. And third, God wants us to embrace him as God, as the sovereign, awesome, uncreated, powerful God who created all things, but who also saves us from our sin. Different people may have expectations of God. And one of the most difficult things for a person to do is to allow God to be God. But in the Old Testament, we discover something that sometimes God is called a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. Something happens. Something happens in your life. Something happens in your circumstances. And you question whether or not God really does know what he's doing. But if you can get past your prejudice or perhaps your ignorance, you're going to discover something. That God is greater than even you can imagine. Look again in verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not shut. This is a shock. The reason why it's a shock is because the Lord calls Cyrus his anointed. That word, when it was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek in the second century B.C., was translated Christos. For those of you who are familiar with that word, that is the word that we use when we describe our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ, the same word. It's usually a word that was restricted to kings and prophets and priests and patriarchs and the people of God. 
As a matter of fact, for those of you who have been following along our study in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah went to great lengths to talk about the emptiness, the futility, and the stupidity of idolatry. And Cyrus is an idolater. How can he be an idolater and the anointed? You see, in history, Cyrus would give credit to the God of Israel for his defeat of Babylon. But sometimes we forget that Cyrus freed all of the foreign people who were in Babylon, not just the Jews. He allowed them to return. Now, again, you have to understand if you're completely clueless as to the context of this scripture, Isaiah is written in about 720 B.C. It's written 180 years before the Babylonian captivity. Once the Babylonian captivity takes place and the children of Israel are removed from Judah and they're removed from Jerusalem, the city is destroyed, the country's destroyed, they find themselves in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the king. For those of you who have ever read the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is that head of gold. Cyrus is the emperor of Persia. He is the emperor of the Medes and the Persians. And he comes against the impregnable city of Babylon. Babylon was a gigantic city with with a wall that was so huge that it was about the same size as a six-lane highway on I-25. Imagine I-25 and all of the lanes, and now imagine that 60 feet high. The city was impregnable. Around the city was a river. And the river was controlled by iron gates underneath the sewage system. And those gates were lifted and the Persians basically invaded Babylon and they captured the entire city. And they didn't lose a single person in their army. God wrote hundreds of years in advance. He names this person by name Cyrus. He basically says, whose hand I have held. 180 years before his birth, God was going to form and create from his mother's womb a human being who would not be able to withstand. Nations could not stand against him. Armies could not stand against him. Kings could not stand against him. Gates and walls could not stand against him because God had a plan. God had a purpose. He was going to liberate the children of Israel from Babylon. He was going to return them to to, to, to Jerusalem, they are going to rebuild the city. Because remember, <clears throat> God is going to bring the Messiah to, to the planet Earth. What Isaiah is basically wanting us to understand in part in, in this particular passage is that everything in the world revolves around not the Democrats' plan for the White House, not the Republicans' plan for the White House. It isn't about capitalism versus socialism. It isn't about the East or the West. All of human history is enveloped, if you will, by the plan of God. The Democrats, the Republicans, the United States of America, Western Europe, South America, China, whatever part of the globe that you're talking about, they may think that they're the center of this human universe. But guess what? God is the center of the universe. And the plans and the purpose that he has is he's moving all of human history in order to accomplish his plans and his purposes. 
the Jewish historian Josephus actually said that it was Isaiah's prophecy that aroused Cyrus to free the Jews. Now, part of what you have to understand is that this document is written literally hundreds of years before Cyrus is the king. Imagine when the scroll of Isaiah is set before Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, Cyrus, what? Whose right hand I have held. I'm the one who created you and everything about you. Uh, I am the person who is... Who has created you in circumstances. Your whole life finds purpose and meaning in the purpose and the meaning that I've given it. The Jewish historian Josephus said it was this scroll that was that was enrolled to Cyrus. He writes now this is this was written in about 80 A.D. when the Colosseum was being built after the fall of Jerusalem. Josephus writes, when Cyrus read this, Isaiah's prophecy, and admired the divine power, an earnest desire and ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was so written. So he called for the most eminent Jews that were in Babylon and said to them, and probably this is Daniel, and said to them, where am I? And admired the divine power and earnest desire and ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was written. So he called for the most eminent Jews that were in Babylon and said to them that he gave them leave to go back to their own country and rebuild their city, Jerusalem, and the temple of God, for he would be their assistant and that he would write to the rulers and governors that were in their neighborhood in the country of Judea that they should contribute to them gold and silver for the building of the temple and besides that, beasts for the sacrifices. Part of what we and what I've been reminding you week after week is their city is destroyed. Their country is destroyed. Their temple is destroyed. Their family is destroyed. It doesn't look like they have no chance whatsoever to fulfill the plan of God. But guess what? God's plans will be fulfilled. Just like God's plans will be fulfilled in your life. I want you to think carefully. God will move heaven and earth. God will orchestrate all things. He will place you in exactly the place where you have to be. He will surround you with the people that need to be in your life. He will order and orchestrate all things as he moves and plans to fulfill his plan in your life and in the life of the church and then in the life of the glory of God that he has established for himself. God is sovereign. And if God is sovereign, then that means all events have one ultimate cause and one great purpose. And that is to establish, create, secure, ensure that the plan of God comes to pass. Now, this is important. Because you might ask the question, well, why then do I have cancer? Well, how come my loved one hasn't come home from Iraq yet? Why did God allow that person or this person to hurt me and then hurt themselves? Why did God allow this? Why did God allow that? Am I going to have enough money to retire before I quit? 
And it's important, and, and certainly it's not, it's not wrong for you to ask those kinds of questions, but there are bigger questions. And the bigger question is, is there meaning to life? Is there a God? Does history have a direction? Is Jesus really God? Can a person really be saved? And all of the Bible is a book that has answers to those questions. Whatever happens, God has revealed to us. I'm the Lord. I do all things. Now, part of the answer to that, I am the Lord, I do all things, is an invitation to a deeper love, to a personal commitment, to a transformation. That in the midst of the pain and the darkness and the sorrow, He is there. That's the point. God is in the business of liberating people from their sin. God is bending all of human history around His ultimate desire to save people. And so in verse 2, when it says, I will go before you and make the crooked places straight, I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron, the gates of, of bronze and the bars of iron are man-made obstacles to the plan of God. But God has said all man-made obstacles must, of necessity, disappear as I accomplish my plan. And look what it says in verse 3. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. You know what the treasures of darkness are? For Cyrus, he is going to envelop all of Babylon, all of Persia, which would include from the Gulf of Aqaba all the way north to the steppes of Russia. Cyrus will occupy land from the borders of China and India west all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. No one, I repeat, no one, no one, no one, no one in human history has ever occupied more territory than Cyrus of the Medes and the Persians. God created him. And God said, I'm going to also make you rich. And look at the reason why, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name. And by that, he means I called you by your name 180 years before your mother and father ever dreamed that you would ever exist. Am the God of Israel. And look what it says in verse four for Jacob's. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. You'll note something that Isaiah keeps stressing the prophetic implication. He is the God who knows the past and the present and the future. And he says, I have named you, though you have not known me. Cyrus would be raised in, in a cult called Zoroastrianism. In this cult of Zoroastrianism, which is a world religion, it was by nature a dualistic, mystical religion that, that separated the world of humanity into that which is light and that which is darkness. And he says in verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. 
I will gird you, though you have not known me. The idea is girding is an idiomatic expression, which means I'm going to put your your pants on. or I'm going to put your dress on. Or if you're a mother and you have a child. If you are a mother and you've ever changed your baby's diapers. And you said, I changed your diapers. I'm the one who put you in your first pair of pants or I'm the one who put you in your first dress. That's exactly what God is saying. You may think your mother changed your diapers, but it was me, he said. And then in verse six, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. You know what that's his way of saying? So that the whole world from the place where the sun goes up to the place that the sun goes down so that the whole world would know that there is a God in heaven and that that God in heaven is the God of Israel and that that God of Israel has a plan and a purpose that in Israel he's going to bring forth the Messiah and in the Messiah he's going to bring forth Jesus and Jesus is going to die on the cross and Jesus is going to rise from the dead. So you're probably wondering, Gino, do you think that everything that happens, everything in the universe Everything that exists has something to do with Jesus? Uh, Yeah. That's exactly what I think. Because that's exactly what the Bible says. You have a job. You have a family. You go here. You go there. You think that you get to drive your car or have your job or sing your songs or do what it is that you think that you do. But everything that you do, every molecule in your body, every fiber in your being, the dirt that you walk on and the air that you breathe is so that God can fulfill his plan and his purpose in your life. Cyrus will have a world empire. Remember, because he's a Zoroastrian person, he is going to of necessity believe in the gods of light and the gods of darkness. But look what it says in verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Some people have read that verse inappropriately and suggested that God is the author of evil. You mean God is the author of evil? No. You mean God killed my child? God made my loved one die in that car accident? God made that person who I love get killed in Iraq? God did that? No, God, no. Listen carefully. God is not and never will be the author of wickedness and evil. The Persian people, most notably the followers of Zoroaster, believed in two coexistent principles virtually regarded as deity or gods, light and darkness. One, Ormzud, was the light or good, symbolized by the light. The other one is Ahrimen, which was symbolized by evil. Part of Zoroastrianism had spread even as far east to China. And some of you have seen those symbols of the yin and the yang, where light and darkness merge and they become one with one another. And so, again, light represented good. Evil represented darkness, both eternally in conflict, the world being the center stage. And so, according to his worldview and according to his belief system, you had two great principles that were constantly at odds with each other, good and evil, and All of humanity and the world was at stage and good and evil would work itself out 
in the arena of human beings. The context seems to be not so much the evil of sin, which, again, God did not create. God is not the author or the originator of wickedness or sin. And so, again, when a person says to you, okay, if God's such a good God, then why did he create the devil? What was he thinking? God never created the devil. God created a perfect angel called Lucifer, who was perfect in his mind and in his heart and in his being. He, had, he was perfect in his beauty. He was perfect in his ability. He was perfect in his glory, the glory that reflected the very God who created him. And God gave him a will, the ability to choose or choose otherwise. And when Lucifer looked and beheld the beauty of his own majesty and the subtlety of his own gifts, he became filled with pride and he was transformed into a satanic being. The Lord claims to be responsible for everything, for everything that happens in human history. The Lord claims that he is free to mold, to shape, to interrupt the processes of human history. He has both the right and the ability to bend everything to his own will. The issue isn't whether or not that's true. The issue is, are you okay with that? Does that bother you? Does it bother you that he gets to do whatever he wants? It shouldn't. Remember, he is the creator. He's the uncreated creator, full of majesty, full of wisdom. He is the only person who has both the right and, listen carefully, the obligation to fulfill all things according to his own will. God does not allow darkness and calamity and then blame someone else. Isaiah is not saying that God sins and you would be wrong if you read it that way. You would be wrong if you believe that God is guilty of wickedness. You would be wrong if you think that he is wicked in any way. The Bible makes it abundantly true that are abundantly clear that when all things come to fruition, when all things come to an end, when every being stands before the judgment throne of God, all creatures, great and small, in every generation will point to God and say, just and true are your ways, O Lord. God cannot sin. But we can. Sin, sin is something that we do. It's not something that God does. Part of the way that you have to think about this is evil is not outside of God's sovereign control. One of the ways that I think is really appropriate to think about is he uses it without being dirtied by it. In other words, God can mold and shape and sustain and work. But God is never, no, never, no, never, ever infected by it, soiled by it, dirtied by it. You see, you can't play in the mud without getting dirty. You can't bring bosom, fire to your bosom without being burned. But God can do all things. And he retains 
holiness, wisdom, righteousness, goodness. One Bible writer named Ray Ortland wrote, and I quote, Therefore nothing, however evil, deprives God of one particle of his intended outcomes. Again, how could it be otherwise? What's the most vicious? What's the most vicious, the most evil perpetrated in history thus far? It's his way of saying, what is the most wicked? What is the most perverse? What is the most wicked and perverse thing that's ever been done in human history? He writes, the murder of God's own son by our guilty hands. But Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him in Isaiah 53.10. The Apostle Peter preached that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. When Peter said that, he was not excusing himself for denying Jesus. He was saying that the worst evil we have ever committed, God turned into the fountain of salvation. I am the Lord who does all these things. Let's stop trying to rescue God from a problem that he created for himself. By claiming full mastery over all things, let's not relieve God of his responsibilities as the king of the universe. The very thing we perceive to be a problem, God perceives as his glory. Namely, God owns the dark moments of life. And he bends everything around his saving purpose. You see, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, is an embarrassment to some Christians. Read it again. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. God's not the author of sin. We know that from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. James chapter 1, verse 13. God understands that when wicked people make wicked choices, wickedness is surely going to follow. God has enormous power. But God uses his power for good every time. And look what it says in verse 8. Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. You know what that means? God is the author of salvation. God is the author of of grace. He is the author of salvation and grace. He is the beginning and the end. He is the, the, the beginner and finisher of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Here's the deal. You should be absolutely filled with joy over the prospect that God is God and you're not. Because you can't create grace and you can't create mercy and you can't create forgiveness and you don't have the power to bend all things according to your own will. But the perfect God does. The reason God's grace rubs us the wrong way 
isn't because of his perfect mercy, his perfect wisdom, his perfect justice, his perfect goodness. The reason why God's sovereignty rubs us the wrong way is because of our expectations and our arrogant demands that we make of God. God, you should be exactly the way I want you to be. Well, guess what? God isn't going to be manipulated by you. Oh, yeah, you can manipulate your husband effectively. Ooh, you may be able to manipulate your children. You may be able to manipulate, manipulate your friends. You may have been a successful manipulator all of your life, but you cannot. You cannot manipulate God. He will not refuse to be God simply because of your failed expectations. You have to do things my way, God. Oh, really? Have you ever thought, Lord, if I were you, I would... Whenever you find yourself going, Lord, if I were you, you should just find a way to scald your mouth with hot tea or whatever. I, I'm not saying abuse yourself. I t- okay, backwards. Don't abuse yourself. Just be quiet. God takes full responsibility for his actions. And look at verse 9. Woe to him who strives with his maker. This is the Lord's way of saying, oh, so you and I, we're going to have a little talk. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherd of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, he has no hands. It's it's God's ridiculous illustration. Can you imagine an ashtray saying to somebody, Why did you make me? Why do I exist? It's the arrogance. And look what else it says. Verse 10. Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? This is this is the Lord's way of saying this. How could you be so arrogant? How could you possibly say to your mother? Why did you conceive me? Or to your father, why did you beget me? Here's part of the point. Listen carefully. For the person who, have, who has ever said, I wish I was never born. The Lord says, why, why would you insult me? Why would you question my goodness and my grace and my mercy? Why would you question my perfect judgment? You exist because God allowed you to exist. Your mother conceived you and your father beget you. Not because God hated you, but because God loves you. Here's what I need to say to you. God is not offended by our honest questions. But he is offended. When you accuse him of messing up your life. I've heard counselors say, go ahead and tell him, go ahead and tell him how you feel. Go ahead and go ahead and tell him just how angry and confused you are. Just because you're angry and you're confused. It is wicked. It is wicked. It is always a bad idea. 
it is always a bad idea to accuse God of being wrong. In the book of Job, there's an amazing passage that I find myself going back to often when I'm counseling. You know the story of Job, how he has a series of catastrophic events that take place in his life, and he has horrible counselors. And by the time you get to chapter 40, the Lord shows up. And it says in verse 6 of chapter 40, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man, and I'm going to question you, and you will answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you might be justified? Do you seriously want to go there? Do you seriously, seriously want to accuse God of being evil, of being wrong, of being wicked? Isaiah is too wise to suggest that faith in God is easy. But you're making a mistake when you accuse him of wickedness. And look what it says in verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. He's basically saying. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, his voice isn't simply to the writers that Isaiah is expressing, but specifically to Cyrus, the king. He's saying, tell me what it is that you think that you need to know. And concerning the work of my hands, you command me. Why is there anything? Look at what it says. I made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretch out the heavens and all their hosts I have commanded. The Lord is speaking to Cyrus, the sovereign king of the known world. Why is there a world? I made it. Everything that you see and everyone that you see, I made it. And look what it says in verse 13. I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. I'm going to raise up Cyrus. He's going to be the king of the world. He's going to let the Jews go, not for price or reward. In other words, I'm not going to bribe him to do this. He is going to do this. I was in New Orleans one year and I saw a bumper sticker that said, He came once, Jesus came once, but I doubt that He'll come twice. Oh, you couldn't be more wrong. There are over 300 prophecies that surround the birth, the life, the ministry of Jesus and His resurrection from the dead. Do you realize there's twice as many prophecies concerning the second coming of Jesus? One of the most astonishing things in your future is that one day, literally millions of people are going to look up from their Bible and they're going to say, I 
can't believe this, but it's true. The Bible is true. Everything in the Bible is true. Evolution is false and the Bible is true. In verse 14, thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and of the Sabaeans, men of stature shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, surely God is in you and there is no other. There is no other God. It was his way of saying that the monumental majesty of Cyrus, in order to place him in the position that he can restore the Jews, he will do whatever it takes to fulfill his plan. And here's what I know you might be thinking. Well, I know God would move heaven and earth in order to fulfill his plan and put the Jews back in the land so that Jesus will be born, so that he'll die on the cross, so that he'll rise from the dead. But how can I be sure that God is that aggressive when it comes to my life? Do you remember what we've been studying on Sunday morning in the Gospel of John? And to those who believed, he gave the right or the privilege to be called the sons of God, the children of God. John would later write in the little epistle of 1 John, Behold what manner of love the fathers lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. And it doesn't yet appear what we, we shall be, but we know this, that when he shall appear, we'll be like him. God will accomplish his plan. And look what it says in verse 15. Truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Do you understand what he's saying? God isn't like he thought he was going to be. Again, Ortland writes, no one watching the Jews struggling to rebuild Jerusalem back then and no one watching Christians struggling to serve God today would think that the future lies with the gospel. Here's the idea. If I had a magic way of bundling all of us together, if we could create a time machine or, or back to the future, if, we, if I could create some way to transport us all the way back to the 7th century B.C., then fast forward to 500 B.C. and you see the children of Israel in the dark despair of their captivity, of their loneliness, thinking that God was completely done with them. And I showed you the majesty of Babylon. And I showed you the majesty of Egypt. And I showed you the majesty of the ancient civilizations, the pyramids and, and the Parthenon and all of the gold and the silver and the pomp and the majesty of Cyrus the king. And I said to you, all of God's attention and all of God's plans and all of God's purposes are around the slaves in Babylon. Everything that's happening on the planet Earth is to get those slaves back to Jerusalem. Some of you watch CNN, and some of you watch Fox News, and some of you watch ABC, NBC, CBS, and you're hearing the news coming from all kinds of sources. The president today traveled to the Middle East. Mahmoud Abinajab is still threatening Israel. The trade relationship with China has reached a peak where China is now the greatest nation when it comes to economy, and the greatest debtor nation on the planet Earth is the United States of America. 
And you might be thinking that the United States of America, you might be thinking that China, you might be thinking that Russia, you might be thinking the oil in the Middle East is the most important thing on the planet Earth. But God has a plan. And God's plan is that all things and everything is moving in a direction so that Jesus Christ will be both Lord and Savior. Everything that's taking place on the planet Earth is taking place in such a way so that your friends, your family, your relatives can be saved. It's so that the prophetic circumstances that God has outlined in the Bible will come to pass. But you'd never know it. You'd never know it by looking at your Christian friends. You'd never know it that God is moving heaven and earth and He's surrounding us so that He can accomplish His plans and His purpose. God hides His greatness in our commonness. In the ordinary circumstance of what it means to be a Christian. No wonder Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Do you realize that you might exist for the specific purpose of the ministry that you're going to impart to your son or your daughter? Do you realize that you might exist Simply for that contribution that you make as you sponsor that pastor in India who leads thousands of people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that you might exist so that you could come in contact with that broken, empty, hurting person and tell them about Jesus? Everything that's happened in your life was to bring you to a place where you could interact with a person about the claims of Christ. Again, do you mean all of human history is about God and Jesus and His people? Uh, yeah. You see, I know it's easy for you to accept what's clear about the gospel. God loves you. Jesus came, He lived, and He died, and He rose from the dead, and He's coming back. What I want you to understand is this. That when you accept what is clear about the gospel, you also accept what is unclear and unknown. Well, I don't know everything about the Bible. I, isn't that great? Well, I don't know how all things are going to end. I know. I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. I know. Isn't that great? No, it's not great. I want to know. Well, tough. God has not chosen to reveal that. Are you clear about the revelation of God in Christ? Then listen carefully. Then don't be so upset when you're unclear about certain things. Look what it says in verse 16. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols. The problem with idols isn't that they simply break down or let you down. Idols are completely useless. And even when false idols seem to be helping us, it's the goodness of God that's really helping us. 
Remember what the Bible says? All good and perfect things come from God. You might have an idol, but God still, in His grace and His mercy, He allows you to wake up. He allows you to go to work. He allows you to have food every day. He allows you to do the things that need to be done, even in our rebellion and even in our disobedience. God watches out for you. But there is no life and there is no hope and there is no salvation apart from the living God. Our responsibility is to turn from the worthless idols and embrace the true and the living God. Look what it says in verse 17. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Look what this is amazing. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Look what it doesn't say. You're going to just barely make it by the skin of your teeth. You came this close to rotting in Babylon forever. You're going to make it, but you're just going to make it barely. No, when God saves you, he's going to he's going to go the distance. He's going to save you completely. Look what it says. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. It's hard. It's absolutely Hard, maybe even impossible to believe that. Especially if you've been disgraced. If you've ever been empty and if you've ever been depressed and if you've ever been lonely, if you've ever thought that that your life was going to be that way forever and ever and ever, when, when the Lord speaks to you and says it's not going to be that way forever, it's hard to believe it. God says, I'm going to take you out of the pit. And I'm going to deliver you. For thus, it says in verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it. Well, according to the History Channel, it was made by a conglomerate of dust as it caves in on gravity. I know. And that's because they don't know God. Look what it says, who who has established it. Who did not create it in vain. Well, you know, it's just a coincidence that life can even survive on this planet. Oh, really? It's just a coincidence that the earth is 93 million miles from the sun. It's just a coincidence that it's in an elliptical or- orbit that gives us seasons. It's just a coincidence that it has just the right amount of, of water to land. It's, it's just a coincidence that it has just the right amount of hydrogen and oxygen to sustain life. It's just a series of cosmic accidents, freak of nature that we're here. No. Who formed it to be inhabited? I am the Lord and there is no other. You mean space aliens didn't come and seed the planet? No. God did. And look what it says in verse 19. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak in righteousness. I declare things that are right. Here's what he's saying. I told you. I told you in advance. I told you over and over again. How many times do I have to tell you before you'll get it? I'm in control of all things. And then in verse 20, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. 
They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image. He's talking about the idols and pray to a to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together who has declared this from ancient time, who has told it from that time. Have not I the Lord and there is no other God besides me, a just God, not a bad God, not a wicked God, not an evil God and a savior. There is none besides me. Was there a God before God? No. Will there be a God after God? No. Sorry, Mormons. Sorry, Latter-day Saints. The evolutionary godhood is not true. Sorry, Hinduism and pantheism and panentheism. The true God, the living God. Here's the deal. The true God, the living God is inviting the people who are reading to rethink their lives. And here's the invitation. Look at verse 22. Look to me and be saved. <laughs> All you ends of the earth. For I am God. And there is no other. Do you see what it's saying? It's not, it's not saying, look to me and be condemned. Be born in the outskirts of Borneo or China or Central or South America. Nations everywhere looking for an excuse not to have a right relationship with God. Here's the invitation that God says, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God. There is no other. And look what it says in verse 23. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Does that sound familiar to you? Doesn't that sound strangely familiar? Like you've read that somewhere before? Paul wrote from prison in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Question. Is it impossible, or I'm going to put it another way, is it possible that Paul was unfamiliar with the book of Isaiah? That's impossible. He is a classically trained rabbi. He has devoted his life to the Hebrew Scriptures. Isaiah read Isaiah chapter 45. And when he came to that verse, I've sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Who's speaking? Jehovah. God. The uncreated creator. The God who created all things and the God who is the Savior. Look again. I have sworn by myself. Verse 20, 25. In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall be glorified. I have sworn by myself. Verse 22. 
I am God. There's no other. Verse 23, I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. That's what it means to take an oath. Paul believed that Jehovah of the Old Testament was Jesus. Isn't that wild? And it says, he shall say, surely in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength to him. Men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. Here's the idea. All will be ashamed. Whoever, ever, ever had had it entered into their mind that they were angry with God. It will come into their mind that it was a stupid and a foolish thing. And how could they have done that? Remember what Paul, Paul writes. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They will do it voluntarily or they will do it involuntarily. Don't be angry with God. You may not be impressed with his kooky followers. Don't be angry with God. What are you holding on to? Your hurt feelings? Your failed expectations? Your broken dreams? Your stubborn pride? Are you going to insist on having your way? But you will bow sooner or later. You will bow willingly or unwillingly. C.S. Lewis, in his great series on Narnia, he wrote one book in, in particular. You may be familiar with it. You may have read it to your children. It's called The Silver Chair. And you'll remember in the Narnia series, the Messiah is pictured as a lion. And Jill arrives at the opening in a forest and she's thirsty. And she spies a stream not far away, but she doesn't rush forward to throw her face into the water. Instead, she freezes in fear because a lion is resting in the sun right beside the stream. And I'm going to read from the book. Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at the motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting or as if it were sorry or as if it were angry. It just said it. I don't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill. She came another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. 
people come dying of thirst. But there is no other way to satisfy. There's no other way to quench the thirst. Remember, Jesus said, come to me and out of your innermost being will come rivers of living water. Oh, but I have to stop. Let Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that we could drink deeply from the river of life. Lord, I pray that we would find in Jesus the satisfying solution to all of our dreams. Lord, I pray that if we have found ourselves with failed expectations, Lord, if we've ever accused you of being wicked or wrong, Lord, in presumption, if we've ever presumed to say to you the things that we, that we wanted to impose upon you, Lord, we repent. Lord, we pray that we could come to you, trust you, rely on you, cling to you, believe in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.